0: lands ravaged by a man-made plague. What was once edible, now toxic to human consumption. A world where humanity is torn apart from within. Where men and women are corrupted into their most fearful states of mind and depravity. And a woman loses a child, stolen by the fruits of the land themselves, whose life she mourns forever after. Welcome listeners, to your two tales from Drunk Tank. This is part one of the morbid tales that I'm covering, and these stories are the works of author M.P. Real Invective, whose stories I've had the honor of having on this podcast before. Listeners, this is not for little ears, not even remotely, and covers adult themes and trigger topics such as rape, abuse, sexual abuse suicidal thoughts, and infant death. Now, scoot those little ears away for now. And before we start, I want to thank my amazing supporters. First up, my Ode Night T-Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, the Mixer King, and Maya, the Hardcore Survivalist. Thank you both for supporting this show at this tier. Every day this show improves, thanks to you. I've recently purchased a new sound booth foam square to place my mic in, should come in next week. And I've been tweaking some recording settings on new software today, so you might notice a little sound difference. I'm welcome to any feedback of course. And all of this thanks to your support. I'm actually really looking forward to the sound booth, we'll see how that goes. Again thank you so much. And my two lovelies that are my white tea warlords. I own cows, the anti bovitarian virus, and Lee Bauer with bacterium power. Thank you both. You allow me to really spread my wings, buying new music, new images to support the show, and so much more. Thank you so much to both of you. And before I get to my enforcers, I have two awesome new supporters. Sarah Satolomna and Tasha Moncrief. Two new lovelies that help make this podcast what it is. So thank you so much for joining the Patreon. Absolute legends. Now, my O'Grain Forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Cresanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Now I know I've said it before, but you are all the blood that pumps in this podcast's veins. Mates, turn the lights off, the sound up and get ready for something disturbing. Drunk Tank, Part 1 It was lauded as an agricultural revolution. Scientists had managed to modify a strain of bacteria that were present in the root system of every plant called Clebsilia planticola. Typically, when a plant breaks down, It produces a sludge that is potentially detrimental to other surrounding plants that needs to be removed or neutralized. These modified bacteria would instead turn that decomposition into ethanol, otherwise known as alcohol. Years of research and study failed to see the obvious flaw in the design, which was plants' inability to survive in soil with a high concentration of alcohol. This little oversight was overlooked until it was too late. Once the modified bacterium were released, it proliferated and rendered the once thriving farmland of the Mideast infertile. Agriculturalists tried to contain the damage, but Pandora's box had already been opened. The trade winds were what damned the world What was once one nation's tragedy quickly spread and infected other countries through wind currents, which carried the modified bacterium to new continents. Within three months, half of the world's land had been infected. Half a year later, roughly 75% of cultivatable land, useless for planting. Nine months after, the agricultural revolution was unleashed on the world. Every single root system had been infected by Klebsilia planticola. On the anniversary of the cataclysm, scientists saved the world with another modified bacterium. This one also targeted the root system and allowed it to absorb the alcohol that lay in the soil without killing the plant. Of course, the damage had already been done. A byproduct of absorbing the alcohol in the soil was that the seeds, plants, and fruits and vegetables were tainted and contained high levels of alcohol. Eating one fruit was now the rough equivalent of taking one shot. It would have seemed like an alcoholic's wet dream, had it not decimated the world and resulted in the deaths of millions. Once a majority of the untainted crops and preservatives were consumed, humanity had no choice but to use and eat the crops that had been tainted with the bacterium. The first few weeks were lost in a drunken haze of chaos and alcoholic inhibition. Those that managed to find the medium and not be consumed by the chaos eventually built up a bit of tolerance to an alcohol-laden diet, and despite this cruel new world, they managed to continue living. This will focus on a few people in their attempts to survive in this place as they and the world itself continues to shamble on to their drunken end. Harriet Portier I felt the room begin to spin, and I tried my best to distract myself. I didn't want to throw up and lose all the hard work I spent trying to fill my stomach. The best way I found to prevent this was to focus on the irony of my situation. A few years ago, I would have welcomed the idea of being perpetually drunk. Uh, But that was while I was still viewing the world from the bottom of a bottle. Now, I don't have much of a choice in the matter. I thought back on what they had told me back at my intervention. They self-righteously explained to me how I would consume myself and become a hollow shell. I might have listened to them if my family or friends had attended. But instead, the circle of friends that had convened was only comprised of work friends. They hadn't really cared about me. They were worried about the hospital's reputation. They wouldn't have minded if I drowned in my own sick in my off time. But the fact that I had come into work once or twice hungover was the straw that broke the camel's back. They espouted pointless platitudes at me. They said they cared, but in actuality, the only thing they cared about was the hospital's status as the top care provider in the lower Michigan area. I nodded, wept a few crocodile tears, and promised I would quit drinking. I had no plans to stop, but some empty assurances were all they really wanted after all. I had built up the perfect system for getting by. A couple of shots after work and over the weekend was enough to keep the memories at bay of my childhood bedroom door creaking open, feeling my foster father's fetid breath on my neck, and his rough, calloused hand sliding up my leg as I desperately pretended to be asleep. I only slipped a few times, and those were never my fault. A persistent prick at the hospital or bar who didn't know when to take no for an answer, Or a message from my foster mother set me off and made me want to drown the feeling. The day I had come into work hungover was a result of a Facebook message reminding me that it was the anniversary of that bastard's death. He had had a heart attack in my bed. He had overexerted himself and was clasping at his chest and gasping as the little bit of air in his lungs was wrenched away from him. I watched for a few minutes before I put his pants back on and called for help once I was sure it was too late to save him. My tolerance was what saved me in the first few weeks of the alcoholic apocalypse. I was already used to a liquid diet and the prospect of ingesting four or five shots alongside my food was not a daunting prospect. The trick, as is the case with being a high-functioning alcoholic, is moderation. Eat a little bit at a time and space your meals out. Most tried to eat everything all at once to save themselves from the taste, which is akin to a bitter liquor. But that only led to them getting sick. Slow and steady was the key. My distraction worked and the room evened itself out. I focused on an object sitting on a shelf. I was clear-headed enough to tell what it was. A dented and puffy can of split peas which meant that I was sober enough to continue scavenging. I would be able to treat any cuts and would be straight enough to know whether or not I was making a stupid decision. In a world where a majority of people's inhibition is lowered, that the prospect of mugging someone seems to have little drawback. Being restrained is the difference between life and death. I turn to the source of the noise and scurry behind the counter hiding was a much better option than trying to talk to an unknown person and determine if they were dangerous or not i could always observe them and make a judgment call i crouched down and peered over the edge at the source of the noise i waited for them to come into view he stumbled into view his clothes were loose and looked like they hadn't belonged to him until only a couple of hours ago he was humming the tune of a limerick to himself If I had to guess, I would assume it was about a man from Nantucket and his disproportionate genitalia. He moved sluggishly and sloppily. He was likely drunk, which wouldn't have been a big problem were it not for the other symptoms. His nose was a bright rose red that only came from a lifetime of drinking and burst capillaries. His movements were choppy, as if he had to think through every action before he took it. His head lolled about, like there was no musculature in his neck. His eyes were glossed over and he mumbled to himself. His skin looked like it was covered in a sheen of sweat and sticky beer froth. I could smell the booze wafting off of him. This wasn't a normal person struggling to adjust to a life after the cataclysm. This wasn't a man at all. This was a wet-brainer. Back when I worked in the hospital, every now and then we would deal with late-stage alcoholics who were literally drinking themselves to death. Some suffered from an affliction called wernicke korsakov syndrome. It was commonly found in people who drank excessive amounts of alcohol over a prolonged period of years. Common symptoms were sluggish, uncoordinated motor skills, even when sober, minor auditory and visual hallucinations, erratic behavior, quickness to ire and irrational behavior, and fluctuating emotions. In the drunk tank our world had become, these were the wild cards. At times they were lethargic, and at others, they were downright psychotic. I remember one staffer at the hospital, forcing his way through three burly security guards, breaking one's nose and another's ribs to get to a bottle of rubbing alcohol, which didn't even have the right type of alcohol for getting inebriated. These people were dangerous, and I was trapped in a supermarket with one. My safest option was to keep quiet and hope that he was just passing through. He could be completely robotic and just running through motions of days long past, or he could be suffering a psychotic break from reality. It was a flip of the coin, and I didn't like the odds. It was best to avoid them completely. I was hunched behind the counter when my stomach betrayed me and growled. It was a long, deep, hollow sound, and I could practically hear his entire body whip in my direction. There was a brief pause, where I fabricated hopes that he hadn't heard it. Of course, those dreams were shattered when he howled, I know you're in here. I can smell you. Oh, your aroma. I scrunched myself into my hiding spot. If he was bluffing, I would rather not give him a cause to search me out if he was unsure. He continued with his over-exaggerated sniffing and catcalls. He drunkenly crooned, Oh, I can tell. You're wet. Are you excited for me? Come out and I'll treat you to the glory I'm packing. I'm using it as a belt right now. This was clearly someone who had completely broken from reality. I had no intentions of indulging his depravities. I heard him stumbling about the room, kicking, discarding cans and trash as he moved. The constant influx of alcohol had rendered him insensate. The thought of sleeping with him Despite the fact that his sperm count was likely abysmal, roiled in my stomach, I still didn't want to suffer the experience of being with him. I vowed to keep quiet until he passed. My stomach had other things in mind. It growled once again and I could hear the man change directions towards the counter that I was crouched behind. My position had been given away. I took a moment to steel myself. I would need to put on a strong front if I was going to confront this wet-brainer. A strong stance would likely discourage him from any advances. Once I was sufficiently fortified, I rose up from behind the counter just in time to see him jump up on it. In the time it had taken me to build up my resolve, he had somehow managed to strip down to nothing. He hopped up on the checkout counter with surprising litheness. At the sudden movement his now exposed testicles were sent flip-flopping around between his legs it looked like a sad little worm tucked between two shriveled grapes it would have been comical if not for the gun in his hands he gestured toward me with a handgun and spoke with drunken bravado found you i winced he had his finger on the trigger and all that lay between a bullet Perforating my chest, was an intoxicated twitch of the hand. I spoke cautiously, trying to reason with him. Let's talk this through for a second. The time for talking is over. I must plant my seed. I'm the only one left capable of fathering children. He noticed my incredulous look and demanded, lewdly, I don't have whiskey dick. I uh, just need a bit to get the juices flowing. Strip for me. He raised his gun to show that he was through with talking and wasn't going to take no for an answer. He wanted me to strip for him and I didn't have much choice in the matter. My skin crawled as I slowly gyrated and danced a bit. He sat down on the counter as he watched me humiliate myself. I slowly began unbuttoning my shirt, as I desperately tried to think of a way out of this. At this range, he could spray the area with semi-automatic fire if I tried to run. The gun was still in his hand, so I couldn't overpower him either. He began to stroke his flaccid length at the prospect of seeing more of my skin, and I almost dry heaved at the prospect. I was sliding off my button-up shirt when the answer came to me. He was now frantically tugging at his shame with both hands in a frantic attempt to disprove his previous whiskey dick statement with his gun, which was within hand's reach at his side. I began to helicopter my shirt above my head. He snapped, tired of waiting. Quit stalling and take off your bra. His words were cut short when I threw my shirt at him and covered his face with it. He immediately swore and poured at the gun he had next to him, limiting my options. I sprinted for the aisles as he pulled my shirt off his face and grabbed the gun. I had hoped that he was too drunk for gunplay, and the prospect of chasing me down would dissuade him. He thought otherwise. As I rounded the corner to duck into an aisle, I heard the crack of a gun and a jar of pickles that had fermented with time exploded, dousing me in its boozy brine. I kept running as the smell soaked into my hair and made me want to vomit. I heard his feet slapping the ground behind me. He fired again. As soon as he rounded the corner of the aisle, I felt the bullet whizz by me. I skidded to a stop at a frozen food section and went to duck into another aisle. I hazarded a look at him to see if he was catching up. And that was my biggest mistake. He charged through the aisle like a bull with his handgun raised. He squeezed the trigger three times in rapid succession. The glass behind me exploded inwards and another bullet pinged off a metal girder nearby. I started to run when the third round caught me in the shoulder and sent me sprawling into the garbage and glass that littered the supermarket floor. The bullet had torn through the flesh of my left shoulder and shattered my scapula on its way out. I would have limited range of motion after this, but it wasn't fatal. The alcohol thinned my blood and made my wound weep. The glass and trash dug into my back and cut at my skin. The pain made me want to pass out, but I knew that that wouldn't stop him from having his way with me. I began to crawl through the debris in an attempt to get further away from him. He dragged himself into view, wheezing and panting at his exertions. Sweat trickled off his beer belly and got trapped in his matted pubic hair. He walked towards me slowly as a grin spread across his face. His bare feet crunched glass with each step, but he was likely too drunk to even feel it. He sank to his knees when he caught up to me and pressed himself against my body. I screamed as he began to grope me, but I knew that no one would be responding to my cry. He tore my bra and I winced as the clasp dug into my back as it was being stripped away. He poured at my breast while slurring, Shh. It'll be over soon. Once you're pregnant, I'll take care of you. We'll repopulate the world and survive. With my genes, our kids will be able to tolerate the environment. I can take care of them. I'll take care of you. I started to cry. He tried to kiss me. His breath was rancid and stank of stale beer. One hand trailed to his semi-hard length while another slid into my panties. I couldn't move. My body locked up and my mind crashed into catatonia. I wasn't lubricated and he was rough. He dug into me as if searching for some hidden place that his delving could uncover. It hurt. I cringed my eyes shut and tried to kill the memories bubbling up at the surface. I wanted nothing more than to close my eyes and imagine I was somewhere else, somewhere far away. I wanted to pretend I was asleep until it was done. I heard a small girl crying and I recognized the voice. If I don't do something, this won't end. It will never end. I opened my eyes and stared down as he attempted to line himself up. My hand shot out and poured desperately amongst the trash. I wrapped my hands around a shard of glass and knew what was coming. He was too focused lining up his own thrusts to see mine coming. Ah! I stabbed into the soft of his stomach and pierced his diaphragm. He gasped in shock as I shoved him away from me. He flopped onto his back as I straddled him and pinned him down. I raised the shard of glass and stabbed into the exposed fat i knew i was cutting into my palm but i didn't care i knew it would leave a scar i knew there was no way i was leaving this place without scars i kept stabbing until he stopped struggling i stood up as he writhed on the ground with eight stab wounds in his torso i tried to let go of what was left of the glass shard but it was fixed in my hand with our blood intermingled I looked over his form. Blood dribbled out of the seven inch punctures I left in him. He squirmed and tried to curl up into himself, as if the motion would help him stem the bleeding. It wouldn't. In that moment, he wasn't a stranger. I watched my stepfather writhing on the ground, trying to press his blood back into his body. I remember the night he died. His breath was coming out in ragged gasps. My eyes were tightly shut, fearful of the night he would ask me if I was awake, afraid of the time when he would demand that I participate. I only opened my eyes when I heard him roll off the bed and hit the ground with a heavy thud. I got out of bed and watched him feebly gasp for help. His eyes met mine, and recognition filled them. He knew why I was doing this. He knew what was happening and that prospect terrified him. I watched as his breathing stilled. I thanked God for heart attacks. I stayed by his cold form for an hour until I was certain that he was dead. The man in the supermarket was not my father. His fate had been more brutal, more painful. I had punctured his diaphragm, even if I had decided to treat him. He would likely still die. I had no desire to save him. He didn't deserve to be saved. He realized what was happening and what was coming. He howled, and for a brief second it came off as a low, mournful sound. Like some sort of supermarket ghost, damned to wander the aisles, trying to figure out what had gone wrong in its life. Once he was gone, I took his handgun. There were a few bullets left. It likely wouldn't deter any wet-brainers, but it gave me the sense of security I felt like I needed in that moment. My bra was ruined, but I was able to salvage my button-up shirt. I put it on and walked over to his bunched-up clothes he had hastily discarded in his rush to rape me. I was tempted to leave them, but I wanted to check to see if he had anything valuable. One pocket seemed to be completely filled with beer tabs, The other had some loose change and two spare bullets. I loaded it and was about to walk away, but something stopped me. I turned, the pocket filled with beer tabs, inside out and let them all spill out onto the linoleum. Dozens upon dozens of tabs fell out and jingled pointlessly onto the ground, building a small monument in celebration of his sickness. Within the cascade of junk was two items. I knelt down and picked them up. The first was an old Polaroid photo that had been balled up and worn with time. He looked younger by a couple of decades, but it definitely was the wet brainer. The man was in a hospital room. He was sitting in a chair and clutching a newborn baby to his chest. The look he had on his face was that of adulation and exultation. It was apparent that he truly loved this baby. The crumpled Polaroid slid out of my hand and came to a rest on the mountain of tabs. The other item looked like a poker chip. It was plainly colored and worn around the edges, as if someone had spent a lot of time rubbing the plastic disc in their hand, while debating whether or not they were going to continue. On the chip was inscribed the following words, XXV To thine own self be true. I looked over the photo, did the math, and added up the years. Once I was certain, I returned to the naked man to dress him. Just like before, I decided that I would redress him. And just like the first time with my stepfather, I wept while I did it. Unlike that night three decades ago, where I wept for myself. This time, I wailed for someone else. This time, It was for the man. I didn't cry over what he was, but for what he once was. I dressed him and left the family photo and the sobriety chip clasped in his sticky cold hands. I couldn't stop. Tears continued pouring out of me like blood from a stab wound. I wept for myself now. I wept for the world as well. Not for what we had become, but for what we once were, and what we could never return to. Drunk Tank, Part 2 Rhea O'Connor Dear Gabriel, Let me preface this all by saying how sorry I am. When I first felt you kick within me, I knew you would be strong. It didn't matter what they told me or what I saw. I knew you were strong when you clenched my finger in your hands. I knew that you would be a shining beacon of light in this world. You grasped my fingers so tight that I was certain that it would break under the pressure. We had suffered so much, so many indignities. I was sure that you would live up to your name. I was right. You were strong. You were the strongest child I'd ever met. I feel like I have to tell you about how you came to be. You deserve that much. You were a miracle. I never assumed that I was ready for children. Whenever the topic came up, I always explained that I wasn't prepared for that responsibility. How could I care for such an innocent thing when I couldn't even care for myself? I was still a baby myself and unable to bear the responsibilities of being both a child and a parent. I always told myself that I wasn't ready for any of this, but in the end it wasn't me who chose the time. It was God. He wasn't the prince I'd always hoped for. He didn't hold me close to him when the time came. He didn't kiss away my tears as he pressed himself into me. He didn't make me feel safe. He didn't make me feel warm. He didn't make me feel loved. He only filled me with an aching that still resounds inside me. He didn't hold me close. He only held me down when the time came. He withdrew from me and I only felt emptiness. I won't lie. When he left, I tried to scrape you out of me. I desperately poured and tried to dig you out. It wasn't your fault. It was mine. I couldn't stand the fact that at the very end of things, I wouldn't remember much about my first time. At the very end of things, I wouldn't want to tell you about your father. The only things I knew about him was that he was harsh and smelled saccharine sweet like fermented fruits. You didn't deserve to hear that. You were innocent and pink. None of this was your fault. So every night I held my stomach and felt you turn and twist in my embrace. I told you sweet stories. I told you that your father was a sweet and compassionate man. I told you that he would teach you how to be strong. I told you that he would be here. Not the actual man, but someone better. Someone you deserve to have. I lied. In the end, there was no one except you and I. The people who vowed to support me drifted apart after the first sign that something was wrong. I tried to hide the stomach aches and the discomfort, but once the symptoms were there, they knew what they had to do. I wasn't the person that they had wanted. I wasn't their salvation. You weren't their salvation. You weren't going to be a shining beacon, rising from the tainted world unaffected. That was fine. It didn't matter that you weren't perfect. You were in me, and that was all that mattered. I carried you for the next couple of months and tried to keep you safe. I tried to avoid alcohol when I could, but towards the end, I realized that I had no choice. There was nothing left in the world, and our only option was to eat what we could. It was bitter, and every bite reminded me that I... "'was hurting you. "'I hoped you were strong enough to adjust to this new world, "'but with each passing day, I knew that that wasn't true. "'I held you within me until I grew gravid. "'I felt you struggle to break free into the world, "'but I kept you inside me. "'I wanted a few more moments to keep you all to myself. "'You were a bright beacon, "'and I wanted that light all to myself.' I don't regret my decision, I pressed you into myself and felt your warmth and light suffuse my core. You were my hope and light. That light died a few weeks later. The stomach pains became more frequent, and my excuses began to dry up like water in a drought. I held tight to the belief that you were a miracle. You weren't just a child, you were the salvation of our future. The one who wouldn't be affected by this tainted world. They didn't see it. As the issue persisted, they slowly abandoned me. They knew what was coming and they couldn't bear to watch it happen again. You decided to make your light known at the most impromptu time. I was only a few miles from the nearest town when my water broke. My first reaction was to foolishly press the liquid back into me as if that would stall the process. It didn't and as I watched the amniotic trickle through my fingers, I realized that your time had come, and that you would greet the world out in the wilderness. I lay down and hiked up my legs. I had no idea what I was doing, but that didn't matter. I fortified myself with the conclusion that you would be strong enough for the both of us. I prayed you would not be a breech birth, and you answered my prayers. You came gently, and my intoxication numbed, Any pain I would have felt. It took three hours for you to emerge into this world. You brightened it up the moment you arrived. You darkened it 15 minutes later. When you passed away. You didn't come into this world crying like a normal child. You were quiet. I pulled you towards me and I felt your umbilical cord press against my stomach as I held you close. It was cold. You were colder than you should have been. Your eyes were so close together, and it almost seemed as if you had a third eye in the middle of your face. There was a hole there through which I could see your final moments. Your eyes had not developed, and your nose was little more than a bump above your lip. You struggled to breathe. I held you close to me and sang to you in your final moments. I sang songs my mother used to sing to me as a child. I sang sweet saccharine songs as you fought to breathe in my embrace. You wanted to persevere so much that you continued living for much longer than you should have. I held you even after you became cold. I held you as you turned blue. I held you as I dug your grave and laid you to rest. I still hold on to you even to this day. I will never let go. Gabriel, you are my one and only child and I will never let you be forgotten. I survived the birth, although I shouldn't have. I staggered into town with blood and amniotic fluid dribbling down my thighs. They managed to save me and get me the transfusion I desperately needed, and patched me up. I spent a few weeks convalescing in their care. The smart ones kept their mouths shut, and didn't ask me questions or tell me how lucky I was to be alive. I wasn't lucky. I wasn't alive. I left as soon as I could. I gave no reasons for leaving them, and they made no attempt to stop me. I wasn't their ilk, and they weren't mine. I walked away and pressed on into this cruel world. This world had become Wormwood, and I was another one of its many victims they were slowly dying and nothing we could do would change that. I called you strong earlier. I was right. You were strong. You were strong enough to realize that you didn't belong in this world. You were strong enough to realize that this wasn't where you belonged. You had the fortitude to leave, even if it meant hurting me in the process. I was right when I gave you your name. You were Gabriel. God is my strength. You were strong enough to realize that this wasn't your world. You were strong enough to realize that your only place was by God's side. He called you to him and you followed. It's true that you left me. But it's also true that you are by God's side. There isn't much left to write, but goodbye. Goodbye, Gabriel. I love you with all my heart. Rhea O'Connor. Dear Gabriel, let me start all of this by telling you how sorry I am. You were the light of the new world and I should have let you shine. Instead I kept you within me. I'm sorry. But after hearing all of this, you will surely forgive me. Dozens of similar letters have been recovered from multiple sites all throughout the Midwest. They all start and end differently, but other than that, they are virtually identical. The nature and content of the letters has led to many people passing around stories of having found them tucked under dolls and stuffed into empty baby nets. These letters have given rise to a new urban legend. On a dark night, the most intoxicated will attest to seeing a woman walking on the abandoned roads shortly after having read or heard about one of these letters. They say that she walks the roads, seeking her lost child. They say that the self-inflicted wounds on her wrist drip a blood that almost looks black in the moonlight. That is their horror story. They do not realize that the truth is much more terrifying. The woman is not dead. She is not a ghost in the traditional sense that haunts the world. She is still alive in a way. She continues to walk the roads, and every reflective moment is devoted to the child that she lost years ago. The toxic land only serves to send her spiraling back into those moments. She is trapped in a cycle of intoxication, constantly reliving the memory of the child she lost. She holds him to this very day. She will hold him to the very end, even though he is weighing her down. Well folks, what do you think of today's episode? Super intense, right? These stories are darker than I usually cover, and there has been some requests for the more morose and macabre tales, and I listen mates. I'll cover part 2 this Friday, or Monday at the latest, and I can't wait to share the Let's Not Meet stories to you brilliant people. Now mates, if you get a chance, and enjoyed this podcast, you can support the show just like Sarah and Tasha did by swinging over to my Patreon page. It's dead easy. wwwpatreon forward sfgt. Also, you can leave an iTunes review. I've embedded a little link inside my episode notes for you to click on once, and that will take you to my podcast to leave a review. Super easy. And thanks to all of you that have already done that. You rock. Stay awesome, guys and gals, which is easy for you lot. And as always... Till next, we meet.